Are you ready? Let me say it first. You repeat it after me. John. My name is Tim Lemire, and I love the Beatles. I also love language. I'm a writer, editor, and author, so language is my livelihood. Why not make a podcast where I use the Beatles' music to talk about the English language? This is The Beatles' English. Episode 9. There beneath the blue Around and about Penny Lane. Well, we are well into season two of the Beatles English, and today I'm talking about the song Penny Lane. Now, so far in this podcast, I've been able to keep these episodes to an average of 15, 20 minutes. Make no mistake, I could talk about the Beatles and or the English language all day long, but I think 15-20 minutes is a good time frame for this podcast. Now, I thought I would be able to say everything I wanted to say about the song Penny Lane in one episode. Nope! (laughs) This is going to have to be a two-part episode. There is a lot of ground to cover with this one song and the issues of language that it brings up. So let's get into it. The years 1966 to 1968 saw the Beatles at the height of their musical powers. And when Beatle fans or music fans bandy about the question, what was the Beatles' greatest creative achievement? The answer is typically the album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, or the album Revolver. Now, I don't disagree with those choices, but I have to say that the song Penny Lane is Beatle Paul at the zenith of his creativity. Penny Lane, in fact, was supposed to be on the Sgt. Pepper album, but it was released as a single in early 1967 because the Beatles' manager, Brian Epstein, insisted it was time for the band to release a single. It had been a whopping five months (laughs) since the public last had a new single from the Beatles. In those days, in the 1960s, if the Beatles released a song as a single, it didn't always show up on the album that followed. That's kind of a long story. As celebrated as the song Penny Lane is, I think it's a little underrated, perhaps because it's overshadowed by its single B-side, John's Strawberry Fields Forever. Now, I'm here to talk about the English language, But let me call your attention to one of the many details in the musical production of Penny Lane that make it so wonderful. One of my favorite little flourishes in the song is towards the end with the lyric, Then the fireman rushes in from the pouring rain. And you hear, after rushes in, a sixteenth note played on tubular bells or concert chimes which are meant to replicate the sound of church bells. Rushes in, din ding ding Now, I've always loved the sound of that, 
And after decades of listening to Penny Lane, I finally realized that's meant to be the little bell on the door to the barbershop, signaling that a new customer has just come in. But instead of a little tinkling sound, it's played on a concert instrument, thus giving something ordinary an almost royal dignity. And that is the whole spirit of the song. That is brilliant. Penny Lane, as even casual Beatle fans may know, is a real place, and the street itself is named after a real person, a Liverpool merchant named James Penny, same spelling, P-E-N-N-Y, who died in 1799. Now, here in the United States, there are countless streets and roads that are named after people who made a great name for themselves in industry, politics, or entertainment. The only problem with James Penny is that he made his fortune in the slave trade. So in 2006, a member of the City Council of Liverpool proposed that all street names in Liverpool named after slave traders should be changed. I probably don't need to tell you that that measure did not succeed. Liverpool is not about to change the name of Penny Lane. Now, whether or not we should name streets, roads, schools, parks, or buildings after people who have, let us say, a problematic personal history is an interesting issue. It's also for some other podcast to work out. I will say, though, that asking why a certain road or street has the name that it's been given is a great way to introduce young people to thinking more deeply about language, because behind that street name is a person, and behind the person is a story. When you delve into etymology, word history, you start to see that there's a reason why objects are called by the name we give them. I don't think that young people are well-served by growing up to think that the world is a confusing and nonsensical place. I truly do believe that learning about language and etymology, why things are called what they're called, can help ground a young person as they navigate the world. It helps to give them an appreciation that some things in this world do make sense. Now, let's talk about five language-related things in the song Penny Lane that are, well, it's not that they don't make sense. It's just that they're, to quote the song itself, very strange. Number five, location. Penny Lane was released as a single on February 13th, 1967, appropriate since the song is Paul's musical Valentine to this place from his youth. Within the annals of pop and rock music, there are many songs that rhapsodize about the excitement and romance of the big city. And in country music and folk music, there are many musical paeans to the peaceful valley, the prairie, and the wide-open skies. Penny Lane is the only pop song I know of that celebrates a suburb. There beneath the blue suburban skies. It's a little unusual that the Beatles, who in 1967 were so rich, 
so famous and so cool, would sing wistfully about the suburbs. Paul and the rest of the Beatles knew Penny Lane because the buses they rode as teenagers went through this area. Penny Lane is in a suburb of Liverpool known as Mossley Hill. The word urban is from the Latin urbanus, meaning city, and of course the prefix sub means below or secondary. A suburb, therefore, is a step below a city. It's smaller in size and scope. Now there is another song I can think of about the suburbs, and it came out in 1967, five months after Penny Lane. Do you know what it is? All right, time's up. It's Pleasant Valley Sunday, written by Carol King and Jerry Goffin, and recorded by the Monkees. But in that song, what begins as an idyllic portrait of the American suburbs turns to reveal them as monotonous, conformist, and dull. Rows of houses that all look the same, and no one seems to care. There is none of that kind of cynicism in Penny Lane. Paul's song is absolutely pure of heart in its tribute. Number four, names. Many of Paul's songs with the Beatles are what we might call third-person dramatic songs. They're little stories about characters. Eleanor Rigby, Rocky Raccoon, Maxwell's Silver Hammer, and Lovely Rita, to name a few. Penny Lane is another example. It's like a little diorama of characters in action. But strangely, none of the main characters have names. They're identified by the work that they do. The banker, a barber, a pretty nurse, and the fireman. I'm hard-pressed to think of another pop song that's about people with middle-class professions and identifies them only by their jobs. Number three, the nurse. In an earlier episode of this podcast, I noted that my favorite couplet of John Lennon's from his song Happiness is a Warm Gun is the following. She's well acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand like a lizard on a window pane. My favorite couplet of Paul's is here in Penny Lane. Beneath the shelter in the middle of a roundabout, a pretty nurse is selling poppies from a tray. And though she feels as if she's in a play, She is anyway. Now, it's not an uncommon feeling or perspective to see your life as a movie or a story with yourself as the main character. But here we have a character in a song who realizes she's a character in a song or a kind of play. And the narrator of the song, the creator of the character, says, yes, you are just a character in a play. It's almost metafictional in its wry humor. Usually in song, when people sing about people or characters, they do so as if those characters are real, or at least real to the singer. But here is the singer, the songwriter, Paul, saying, no, you're correct. You are in a play. The dramatic play of the song itself. The play I've created as a memory of Penny Lane.
Perhaps here, in Penny Lane, as in Strawberry Fields, nothing is real. Paul's mother, by the way, was a pretty nurse. Whether or not he was thinking of his mother when he wrote this line, I don't know. Number two, the weather. The picture we get of Penny Lane is a bright and happy one, of a place beneath the blue suburban skies. But by the end of the song, the fireman rushes in from the pouring rain. Well, which is it? Is it sunny? Or is it overcast and rainy? This leads us to number one. (laughs) Number one, time. What time of year does the song take place in? The hustle and bustle of the people, the bright and blue imagery, four of fish and finger pies in summer, suggests that it's summertime. But the pretty nurse in the roundabout is selling poppies from a tray, which means that it's November 11th, Remembrance Day. This, to me, is another ingenious touch from Paul, that a song about remembering Penny Lane should take place, at least in part, on Remembrance Day. And perhaps these very strange aspects of the song are simply a reflection of how memory works. You know, I I remember there was a banker and a barber, but I can't remember their names. And in my memory, sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it's raining. I don't know what the weather was like. Now, in part two of this two-part episode, we'll dive deeper into this. Let's talk for a moment about the visual arts. Whether you are looking at a photo by Diane Arbus or a painting by Caravaggio, the artist will use composition to direct your eye, basically telling you what to look at and what to pay attention to. Penny Lane does this quite a bit, probably more than any other Beatles song. If you like, the song is kind of like a movie. Paul is directing your attention to this person, then that one, then this area, and then this detail. He accomplishes this by a heavy use of prepositions. Now, as we all remember from our ninth grade grammar lessons, a preposition is a part of speech whose function is to link parts of a sentence together. Prepositions describe the relationship between elements of a sentence, and the prepositional phrase is a group of words that have, at the very least, a preposition and an object. The prepositional phrase can function as an adjective or as an adverb. For example, the first words of the song, in Penny Lane, is a prepositional phrase. It lets us know where we are. So let's run through all the prepositional phrases in Penny Lane. In Penny Lane, on the corner, in the pouring rain, beneath the blue suburban skies, with an hourglass, in his pocket, of the queen, in summer, with a motor car, behind his back, in my ears, in my eyes, behind the shelter, in the middle of a roundabout, from a tray, in a play, from the pouring rain. That is a lot of prepositions for one song. And they all function to direct our attention so that Penny Lane 
is in our eyes, too. Okay, let's have a trivia question. In 1984, a pianist and composer named John Bayless, B-A-Y-L-E-S-S, released an album called Bach Meets the Beatles, Improvisations on Beatle Melodies in the Style of J.S. Bach. You can listen to samples from this album on YouTube. Question. What is the connection between the song Penny Lane and Johann Sebastian Bach? Now, while you're thinking about that, a brief word that my name is Tim Lemire. You can find episodes of The Beatles English on Apple Podcasts and on my website at timlemire.com, where you'll also find more information about me. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe or leave a review. That helps other Beatle people to find it. So here's the answer to our trivia question. In 1966, so the story goes, Paul McCartney was watching television, and the BBC was broadcasting a performance by the English Chamber Orchestra of the Brandenburg Concertos by J.S. Bach. Paul was particularly taken. Paul was especially taken with the third movement of the second Brandenburg Concerto. You might recognize it yourself. Paul liked the sound of this trumpet. As it happens, the trumpet was Paul's first instrument when he was very young. At Abbey Road Studios, Paul described this trumpet sound to George Martin, and he asked if they could do something like that for the instrumental fill for Penny Lane. George Martin explained to Paul that what he had heard was the piccolo trumpet, which is an octave higher than the standard trumpet. And Martin did Paul one better. Not only could they get a piccolo trumpet player for Penny Lane, they could get the same musician Paul had seen on television, a fellow named David Mason. Mason came to Abbey Road, lent his talents to Penny Lane, and like many classical musicians who appeared on records by the Beatles, he received no credits, no royalties, and just a small flat fee. But very likely he got a good amount of cachet, at least with the younger crowd. So next time, we are going to talk more about the English language as it pertains to Penny Lane. I hope you'll join me. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Tim Lemire, and this is The Beatles English. <laughs>